you know, back in the 60s and 70s, this just wasn't a super contentious issue in this country. And it seems like in the 80s, this became a much more contentious issue with voters. I think so many people have relied upon this decision and it's it's now become a right. It's been in place my entire life. And if I were a justice, I would vote to uphold this. But I am very sympathetic to people who are very frustrated by the original reasoning and Roe. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, we definitely have some news today. Where are we going to start? On today's show, the Department of Homeland Security says its new disinformation board has a misinformation problem. So nothing confusing going on there. And the return of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. We'll check in on journalism's most self-indulgent night. But first things first, we begin with a historic leak and potentially a historic decision. The U.S. Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, according to a draft opinion obtained and published by Politico. The language could change in the months to come, but provided the votes do not, then abortion access in America will considerably change this year, with political battles to follow all over the country. It's hard to overstate how big of a story this is on so many levels, but Ravi, why don't we start with laying out what we do and don't know at this point? Right, so Politico, huge story. I have every reason to believe that this document that they published is authentic. And what it is, is a draft opinion of the court, which means to suggest that if if they were releasing this opinion today, it seems that they have five votes to overturn Roe versus Wade, and we'll get into the details here. But this actually isn't an official release. The votes could change. So five could turn to six, but it also could turn to four. And the actual content of the opinion could change. Like this is a draft and like, you know, like draft of anything, there could be edits, there could be changes. And as people, you know, join the opinion or drop off the opinion, the content of it could change. So I think it's really important to just step back and say like this, this whole story could change, but the assumption is that they have five votes to overturn Roe versus Wade, which would be obviously significant. Historically, this is almost unprecedented for such a complete draft to be leaked in this way. There have been leaks before, but um, nothing advanced of an outcome since 1986. Um, And so what we have from Politico is what's clearly a scanned first draft, um, and they are kind of vague on who they got it from, but they say... Quote, a copy of the draft opinion is from a person familiar with the court's proceedings, along with other details supporting the authenticity of the document. Um, And so the Supreme Court spokesperson declined to comment. This is likely two months ahead of a planned release. And so it's unclear if there have been subsequent changes since this initial first draft, if there will be continuing changes. But obviously, there are huge concerns because how does this becoming public before it actually comes out? Like, how will this potentially impact the justices and their decisions in the long term is a huge question. There's a ton of conspiracy theories just naturally flying around right now because this is something huge to kind of consider who who leaked this and where is it coming from? Is it coming from a progressive uh, leaker who wants to galvanize support for um, the pro-choice movement ahead of this decision? Is it coming from a conservative who wants to keep any fence sitters like staying steady with their original decision on this 5-4 decision? I mean, it, there's so many questions here, but um, historically this is like nothing we've ever seen before. Yeah, let me give you two tweets to 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 give some color to those conspiracy theories. Ben Shapiro tweeted, 
There is little question that this leak is designed to create threat to the life and limb of any justice who signs onto the majority opinion, prosecution to the full extent of the law. So that's him. And then there's Rick Hassan who says, one thing to keep in mind here, some may say the SCOTUS leak benefits those who oppose overturning Roe, but it actually helps the majority that overturns by one, deflecting commentary to the breach of court yeah. secrecy norms, and two, lessening the blow by setting expectations. I think in short, none of us really know. I yeah. think you can, Definitely. we could speculate, but we're not sure and we may never know. No, we might. I think it's Jenny Thomas that released it, to be honest. But no. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a joke. That's a joke. That's a joke. That's a joke. I must clarify that. Um, now, it's important to state that if this is the majority opinion and this does become the thing that overturns Roe v. Wade, it doesn't necessarily mean abortion automatically becomes illegal overnight. It basically kicks it to the states to be able to decide whether or not abortion is going to be legal there, correct? Right. And you were looking at some of the state laws, right? Like where where do we stand today? I know that this is a, this is a fluid situation, but what do we yes. know about which states, if like the, the day this is, this decision's rendered, which states would, would abortion be illegal in? Well, I mean, if you looked at a 2016 or 2020 map that showed you red versus blue states, you'd basically be able to figure out from that which states would allow abortion and which states wouldn't. Um, from Texas to South Carolina, the Deep South has already passed a lot of laws that would pretty much restrict some or all abortions. Of course, there's the mountain states, Idaho, Wyoming, North and South Dakota. They have what is called trigger laws. Can you explain what that is? Real quick, right. Robbie? So these are laws that would you know, kick in in the event of a decision like this. And so they they don't expose themselves to, you know, scrutiny from the courts until they're pretty confident that the courts are going to back them up on this. And so I think one thing you're going to see is, I think a lot of these states aren't even going to wait for this decision to be rendered. I think they're going to take this opinion and you're going to see state legislatures oh, around yeah. the country, like, you know, not just passing trigger laws, but uh, passing blanket bans on abortion. But I think, you know, taking a step back from all this, like, I think, Obviously, this is going to change a lot of lives, right? Like I used to split my time between Jackson, Mississippi and Nashville. Jackson's where this case was, uh, you know, the, the original facts of this case came from where there was one abortion provider essentially for the entire state that was at issue here. And, you know, this was a question of whether they could really exist or not. And the background of this case was that uh, Mississippi passed a law saying that after 15 weeks, you can't have an abortion except in some very exceptional circumstances that they outline in the law, which would have violated the original uh, precedent set in Roe. So the background of Roe versus Wade is that this decision from 1973, Roe versus Wade laid out this trimester system that said that basically in the first two trimesters of a pregnancy, you can't restrict abortion, but you can in the third trimester. And the Mississippi law is well short of the end of the second trimester. And so that's how this got to the court. And they didn't just say this Mississippi law was okay, which was, I think, part of what Roberts appears to have wanted to do. If you listen to the oral arguments, he wanted to basically say, it sounds like he was motivated to try to find a way to let the Mississippi law stand, but not completely overturn Roe versus Wade. And essentially what he would have done is probably bring the clock back a little bit more to say like, all right, you can start to restrict abortion earlier in the pregnancy, but we're not saying that, you know, you can blanketly outlaw abortion. That seems like the sort of quote unquote compromise he wanted, but based on this decision, it doesn't seem like he got it. Yeah. Regardless of your opinions about abortion, which we may get to a little bit in this section, I want to talk a little bit about Roe v. Wade as a court decision you're, you went to law school. There has been a notion that this decision was always on shaky legal ground. Is that is that true in your assessment? Right. Yeah. So let me take a step. I'll come back around to that decision. And this is probably where 
you know, from this point forward, I probably won't get invited to a lot of progressive um, dinner parties after this, but I'll give you my honest opinion about this is that it's no secret that a lot of progressives, even progressives who support abortion have had issues with Roe versus Wade. Even uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg back in the day was pretty public about certain issues that she had with Roe versus Wade and actually favored using the equal protection clause uh, instead of due process and the right to privacy to, you know, sure up support for abortion rights in this country. And I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive. There are people who disagree with me on this, but I do think you can support abortion rights. You can support a national policy to ensure the, you know, access to abortion while also thinking that Roe versus Wade is a very flimsy decision. And so let me, let me get to a little bit why that's the case, right? So I talked about this trimester framework, right? At the time of Roe, 30 states had prohibited abortion at all stages. And in the year prior to Roe, a third of states had liberalized their laws. And part one of what Alito is taking issue with in this decision is that, hey, there was a political process playing out. Actually, abortion was becoming more and more permissible around the country. And and that the decision in Roe versus Wade short-circuited that political process and didn't allow it to play out, which is actually why it became more polarized in the first place. Like, I think he's kind of implicitly stating that, hey, this would have actually played out in our political process and access would be widespread if the court didn't intervene, but they did and overruled the the will of the people. And so I'll stop there because there's so much more to this, but what do we think about that argument? Well, I think that's probably true and that a lot of the resistance to some more common sense basic abortion rights is probably because at least in part because there was a period in time where states and local governments were forced to change their laws but i also would say on the issue of whether roe was a legally solid ruling there is also the question of how how can you make this a constitutional issue when this is something that's clearly not mentioned in the constitution and not necessarily a constitutional right and From a legal standpoint, regardless of my personal views on it, I do understand the argument that's being made here that this is a contentious issue that should be returned to the state. However, I do see how this will profoundly impact a lot of people's lives too. So I think it's one of those really tricky issues where I can kind of mull through either side of my head and understand how someone could get there for sure. Let me get to that point you make about it not being mentioned in the constitution because that's so much about what's at work in this case. He he repeatedly says abortion is not mentioned in the constitution. The lawyer for the state of Mississippi in this case mentioned that repeatedly in the oral arguments. And there's a key part, I think this is the most critical part of the decision in which Alito lays out this this concept of substantive due process, which is a, a legal term jargon that basically says there's more, most people, including Alito in this decision, acknowledge that there are certain rights that are implicit in the Constitution that aren't stated. But he says there are limits to that. And this is what he says. He says, the Constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one in which defenders of Roe and Casey, which I'll get to what Casey is in a second, the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not maintained in the Constitution, but any such rights must be, quote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition and, quote, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Those two quotes in there, deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, are where most, I think, astute observers of the court zeroed in on yeah because that that's coming from this case washington versus glucksburg and essentially there that that is not a that is not a case that i would say like 
it's settled that this test that he's using is the test to decide what substantive due process is. And to your point, Ricky, like there are certain things like gay marriage, for example, or marriage period that aren't shored up in the constitution. And so like you, we look to say, all right, there's a the due process clause read in a certain way guarantees that right. And I think that's what's worrying people is people are saying, all right, abortion first, gay marriage next, because actually, you know, due process was the justification for the gay marriage decision, not equal protection. So a lot of people are worried that that's, they're going to come for that next. Yeah, Alito writes in this opinion that the inescapable conclusion is that the right of abortion or the right to abortion is not deeply rooted like you said, in this nation's history and traditions. You know, slavery was deeply rooted in this nation's history and traditions, and it was still outlawed by the 13th Amendment. So I don't think that that's necessarily uh, the best argument for why something should or shouldn't be as the country changes. I think one of my biggest things here is that this sets a precedent of overturning precedent that could be applied to a lot of other Supreme Court decisions. And so I think what a lot of observers of this who aren't really familiar with the legal jargon, they're going to look at this and see that this Supreme Court holds so much power. And at any given time, they could just overturn some previous decision right. and, and, and completely set the clock back on what this country has been doing for so many years. Yeah. And to close the book on your point, let, let's take gay marriage, for example. If if I were you know in the you know the Alito camp, what he will probably say, he he basically tries to to go out of his way, and some of the justices in the oral arguments did the same to say that some of these other precedents are not next. Amy Coney mm -hmm. Barrett basically said that through a question in the oral arguments, and there's some dispute about whether this opinion also tries to assuage a little bit of the but, the alarm. But correct this. me if I'm wrong. Didn't they make that claim about, about Roe v. Wade? in the first place, that it yeah. wasn't going to be on the chopping block? Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're going to watch some clips in a second on that. I, there's reasons not to trust some people involved here. But one point I would like to make is we can go back and see the confirmation hearings of Kavanaugh first, and then we'll look at Gorsuch to see what they had to say about Roe versus Wade when they were up for confirmation in front of the Senate. Roe v. Wade is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. It's been reaffirmed many times. It was reaffirmed in... Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, when the court specifically considered whether to reaffirm it or whether to overturn it. In that case, uh, in great detail, the three justice opinion of Justice Kennedy, Justice Souter, and Justice O'Connor went through all the factors, the stare decisis factors, analyzed those, and decided to reaffirm Roe. That makes uh, Casey precedent on precedent. It's been relied on. Casey itself has been cited as authority in subsequent cases, such as Glucksburg and other cases. Uh, so that precedent on precedent is quite important in, as you think about uh, stare decisis in this context. And let's look at Gorsuch. Again, I would tell you that Roe versus Wade, decided in 1973, is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It has been reaffirmed. The reliance interest considerations are important there and all of the other factors that go into analyzing precedent have to be considered. It is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It was reaffirmed in Casey in 1992 and in several other cases. So a good judge will consider it as precedent of the United States Supreme Court worthy as treatment of precedent like any other. There's a term that Justice Kavanaugh used called stare decisis, which essentially is the Supreme Court's and other courts deference to prior decisions, right? And it's not absolute, but it's pretty strong. And we'll get into how that plays in in this case. But as I watch this, 
obviously they didn't say I'm not going to overturn Roe, but it's highly deceptive if if they now join this uh, majority opinion, having those statements in front of the United States Senate where they seem to highly suggest that they were going to honor stare decisis in this case. Well, generally speaking, when the Supreme Court has overturned a previous decision, it was because that previous decision had basically grown poor in the light of the public, like, for instance, the Dred Scott decision, which wasn't really overturned by the Supreme Court, was more or less overturned by the 13th uh, and 14th Amendments. And then, of course, there was uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, which was overturned by uh, Brown v. Board of Education. So it seems like usually when they overturn a previous decision, it's because the country has evolved on that decision. But with abortion, it's kind of the opposite, because you did some historical research about this, the fact that, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, it just wasn't a super contentious issue in this country. And even prior to that, it wasn't a super contentious issue in this country and it seems like in the 80s when our politics got so radicalized and so polarized this became a much more contentious issue with voters well i do think uh, and and i don't use the term both sides i i, I think I've, I've, I've banished that term but i do think liberal and conservative justices have been willing to overturn precedent before when it fits their political aims you know a good example is the very case we cited which is the gay marriage case there was ample precedent going against that but they decided not to right and like you said one example of why they do that is if there's overwhelming public pressure you know how relevant public pressure is i think is a, is a fascinating discussion because the constitution in a way is, is supposed to be immune in some ways to public pressure it's supposed to be a check against the majority in some ways that otherwise you wouldn't you wouldn't memorialize it in a kind of anti-majoritarian document like that right like you need like super duper majorities to change the constitution it's almost impossible at this point but yeah, I, I think that, you know, the history here is is challenging. The stare decisis point here is really where I think this gets interesting because they reference, Gorsuch references this Casey case, right, which was in the early 90s. And it was a, it was a split majority where two of the justices were basically like, yeah, roll all the way. Let's just reaffirm it. And then there were three justices who were basically like, I'm not sure about Roe. Like it, it's kind of like, as you know, my language is flimsy. They had their own language for it. But we're basically going to uphold it in the name of stare decisis, meaning we want to keep the precedent in place because so many people have been relying upon it up until now. But we don't really know what to do with the original legal reasoning, right? That's like my kind of lay explanation of it. That's kind of where I am, which is I think so many people have relied upon this decision and it's, it's now become a right. It's been in place my entire life. And I would, if I were a justice, I would vote to uphold this, but I am very sympathetic to people who are very frustrated by the original reasoning in Roe. I think also to your point about public opinion, this is definitely an unsettled issue. And there's definitely a what I think is a sound moral argument on both sides of the spectrum. And you have to make a decision between a gain and a loss regardless. It's, it's a really tough and sensitive issue. And I think that there are even though we are so polarized, I do believe that there are good faith people on both sides of this debate. I, I think that there are, of course, extreme people on both sides as well. But I think that it's one of these really tough moral questions that we as a society clearly still need to grapple with and have discussions about. And, you know, unfortunately, it's we're hearing now through a leak in the court that this is how it's all going to kind of shake out in the short term. But um, I think it's definitely one of those unanswered questions for us societally. Not really sure if uh, moral arguments have any place in government, though, because I don't think the government should be able to legislate morals just personally, because I would say, personally speaking, I have a child and I saw my wife go through the entire process 
of getting pregnant and, and giving birth. And it actually made me more pro-choice, personally speaking, because it was a very scary experience. I could see that being a scary, a scary experience for any woman. And quite frankly, you know, a lot of people ask me that all the time. They say, well, you have a kid. You saw your kid be born. What, how can that not make you more pro-life? And, you know, how, they say, how can that not make you respect the miracle of life? And I just... I want to reiterate, it's not a miracle for everyone. Like me and my wife were very lucky that our child was healthy, that my wife was healthy, that we had insurance, that we had the money and resources to take care of a child. And so many people in this country simply do not have that. And so many people in this country simply do not want children. In my home state of Alabama, 6,000 children are waiting to be uh, placed in foster care. And I don't see any national legislation or Supreme Court decision that's trying to address the children that are already living in this country, that are living below the line of poverty. We're not addressing that. But we want to force children into existence and force children into suffering because of some moral standing that we have. And we want to project that on other people that don't even have anything to do with us. Stand I think like the hardest part of this is, and I come out on the politics the same way, the policy, not to use politics, like and the morality of it. Although I do think like government all the time, you know, uses morality to justify laws. Sometimes I, I agree with their use of it. Sometimes I don't. I think part of what you're saying is, it will either religion like obviously shouldn't be in there or like cases where there are massive differences on what the moral thing to do is right that's where government should probably take a step back although somebody who's an opponent of abortion would say well then government should step back here and this is an issue where some people think it's murder and some people think it's a question of autonomy some people actually think it's both yeah. <laughs> and some think it's neither and so it's like mm -hmm. this it's this issue where you know, Alito says this in his opinion, this is the kind of thing that society should be debating because like you, as you so eloquently described, you have your personal story of it and, and that resonates a lot with me. But there are a lot of people who are like, look, I think this is actually murder and they genuinely believe that. And so to me, I, I have a hard time figuring out what to do with that conflict between rights. So for my own personal reasons and like my own beliefs, I come out where you are on this, but I do, I am sympathetic to people who feel differently. And I think the sympathy and empathy, I think, is is missing in many ways. And I think that does go both ways, right? Like, I think there's there's not enough sympathy for that woman in, in Mississippi who's coming from the Delta, who has to drive to Jackson, endure protests, people yelling at her, calling her names to walk through that door. I've seen it with my yeah. own eyes to get a procedure. And now that procedure is not available probably to her after this decision. And it was already very hard to, you know, at great personal cost and ridicule it was already hard to begin with. Now it's even harder. You know, there's just a version of this movement. Like I'm pro-choice too. I think that there are reasonable restrictions that need to be in place personally. Um, and I think certainly in the timeline of a pregnancy, and I don't think that that's unreasonable to expect a woman to have a certain time frame where they yeah. make this decision. But, you know, I would also just point out that there is a growing sentiment of like the it's just a clump of cells movement that I think is often really insensitive and it, it undermines a lot of women who do make those those choices or have made that choice and are profoundly impacted by that. And I think it also we lose the conversation around, you know, 51% of women in 2014 who got abortions were using any form of birth control, which means almost half weren't. And we have a problem with, with responsibility. We have a problem with sex education. Like clearly this goes down to a much deeper level that just the ethical arguments don't even really start to scrape the surface of. And so I think that it's a lot more complex than just, you know, is it right or wrong or this or that? Like, I think that you have to weigh cost and benefits on either end. But um, I think that, you know, there is, a good faith ethical argument that some people do make out of out of goodness and not out of evil. I do strongly believe that. Yeah, and to just 
like send this story off. I think the politics here are going to be interesting. So Trump in the debate in 2016, the third debate, was asked about whether he was going to use a litmus test for the court. Do you want the court, including the justices that you will name, to overturn Roe v. Wade, which includes, in fact states, a woman's right to abortion? Well, if that would happen, because I am pro-life and I will be appointing pro-life judges, I would think that that will go back to the individual states. But I'm asking you specifically, would you if like to... If they overturned it, it'll go back to the states. But what I'm asking you, sir, is do you want to see the court overturn? You just said you want to see the court protect the Second Amendment. Do you want to see the court overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, if we put another two or perhaps three justices on, that's really what's going to be... Ha that will happen. And that'll happen automatically, in my opinion, because I am putting pro-life justices on the court. He comes pretty close to saying that this is the outcome that he was planning for when he was selecting justices, which makes the justices' comments in front of Congress all the more frustrating to me because it belies a lack of honesty. And I think particularly for Justice Kavanaugh, I think there's a lot more to be said about credibility here. Like if you were lying about one thing in front of the court or being highly deceptive, yeah. is it possible you were lying about something else? Uh, I think the second part of this is that the court packing uh, debate is going to heat back up again. Oh, I'm yeah. seeing it all over the place. You know, this Katie McBride on Twitter said, you know what else isn't in the Constitution? Nine justices on the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I think get ready, everybody. This is, this is going to be the defining issue of what what seemed to be a midterm election that was going to be about things like CRT, I think it is going to be about abortion as much as anything else. Yeah, I thought it was going to be about the economy. But, yeah. but it looks like it's going to be more more or less about this issue. Yeah. It could be the worst name for a government organization ever. Well, maybe since the Board of Tea Appeals. But the newly minted Disinformation Governance Board has the political spectrum confused and divided. Republicans are calling it the Ministry of Truth, a knock on George Orwell's classic 1984, while the Biden administration is struggling to clean up some of the misinformation surrounding the disinformation board itself. Announced last week, the board was created to combat Russian meddling in elections and stop disinformation circulating around the border, particularly disinformation used by smugglers to encourage migrants to come to the states. DHS Secretary Mayorkas went on CNN over the weekend and promised the nation it wasn't meant to spy on Americans or restrict free speech. But Ricky, as the resident libertarian here, I'm sure you have some strong opinions on the very existence of this board. I sure do. Um, <laughs> so this is under the DHS, um, but there were no specific details or mentions on the website when they announced it kind of vaguely saying there was Russian disinformation they were talking about, also talking about issues of the border, um, you know, a lot of different topics swirling around, like ideas of Russian disinformation about COVID vaccines. And like, you know, this could be a very sweeping and broad board theoretically, which I think is why a lot of people, myself included, felt that it seemed quite Orwellian um, conceptually just to have a government board say this is true and this is false because just in the past few years, especially in the pandemic, a lot of disinformation became, you know, either valid hypotheses or things that, you know, we accept as scientific fact, like there, things change. And I think that this is potentially a... A sketchy government organization, particularly because the woman who's heading it is has a pretty bad track record on. I mean, I, I'm sure that I'm just pulling out the worst elements of her track record. But as a whole, she's had a few serious misses, including saying that the Hunter Biden laptop seemed to be Russian disinformation. Um, she was a proponent of the Steele dossier. She wanted social media companies to stop advertising masks on in March of 2020 um, during the outbreak of the pandemic, which didn't age so well. Um, recently <laughs> during 
The Elon Twitter News, she said, quote, I shudder to think about if free speech absolutists were taking over more platforms, what that would look like for mar- for the marginalized communities. And so, you know, she doesn't seem to have a very pro-free speech orientation, not to mention her TikToks, which I just, I think Should might be worth watching. Yeah. Information laundering is really quite ferocious. It's when a huckster takes some lies and makes them sound precocious by saying them in Congress or a mainstream outlet. So disinformation's origins are slightly less atrocious. It's how you hide a little hide a little lie. It's how you hide a little hide a little lie. It's how you hide a little hide a little lie when Rudy Giuliani shared that intel from Ukraine. Or when TikTok influencers say COVID can cause pain. They're laundering disinfo when we really should take note and not support their lies with our wallet, voice, or vote. Oh! I mean, that was cringe, but I mean, that probably took a while to memorize all of that. I mean, there's a little bit of talent there. Good singing voice, but I have two reactions to this. One is, <laughs> is the stated aims of this board I'm fine with. I would say she seems like a curious pick to me to be taking this on. First of all, why she's opining about current events like Elon Musk while she's about to take on this critical role seems really unprofessional to me. Like usually when I have friends who like are taking on critical roles in an administration, they go dark for like six months before that and they don't say anything controversial. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. delete every tweet they've like, ever, had. Never. a lot of them they probably never tweeted tweet. in the first place. <laughs> yeah. yeah, The fact that she's so loose and has been so loose for so long makes this a very confusing pick. But my second reaction is, you know, to your point around disinformation, I do think it's a really important name to, to take on uh, misinformation and disinformation from foreign actors. I, I really do believe in that. I think that there's like this, these these polar opposites on the spectrum that I'm equally uncomfortable with. On one side, you have people, and she might be one of them, who seem so trigger happy to shut down speech and call it disinformation when it's not yet true that it is, whether it's the Hunter Biden laptop or the Wuhan theory, et cetera. And we need to be really careful about those people. And then there's like this contingent, I think, of like the extreme of the right and the left that is almost become like postmodern, like co, like, like what is truth? We don't know what truth is anymore. Nobody should say what truth. I'm like, yeah, you know what? Like there are things that are true or not. And yeah. if the Russians and the you know other you know hostile foreign actors want to spread those untruths and if those untruths serve their purposes then to me we need to have a government entity concerned about that and i'm okay with that i just wish the execution was better here and i hope i hope they get better with this and just real quick uh nina jankowitz was the name of that person who will be heading this disinformation boy i'm not sure if we mentioned her name so i just wanted to i'm gonna uh, predict she doesn't make it very long i'm not big on <laughs> predictions in here but i i suspect that there may be some person i don't i don't here. think this board itself will make it very long i mean I, I totally agree with what they're trying to do here disinformation is a huge problem ricky you mentioned the fact that there was a lot of things that were called disinformation that did turn out to be true such as hunter biden's laptop and things like that but then there was a vast majority of things in disinformation that has still not been proven true, such as I, I, I haven't seen John F. Kennedy Jr. come back to run as Donald Trump's running mate in 2024. I just <laughs> haven't seen that yet. We don't know, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that that's probably not going to happen. So there's a lot of disinformation, misinformation there. Some of it may be satire. Some of, some, some of it may just be general trolling. But there is a lot of disinformation out there that is real, that is harmful, that is very problematic, uh, such as Donald Trump winning the last election. That's disinformation. But I totally agree with you, Ricky. I, I do believe that I don't trust the government to be in charge of a board like this, given their track record with just like lying in general. 
Yeah, and a, a few things I would point out about this as well is I've seen, especially in the news coverage surrounding this issue, misinformation and disinformation used interchangeably, and I think that yeah, that's what a is the really important nuance. Because yeah. I think originally there was there were conversations about disinformation. And then that term became kind of like like mainstream and we discussed it quite a lot. And then all of a sudden misinformation was the word that started popping up. And disinformation requires you to have intent to yeah. misinform people, whereas misinformation means that you're just saying something wrong and you're right. just wrong. Yeah. And I think it's in order to have a public forum, in order to have open dialogue and free speech, there's always going to be misinformation. The way that you fight misinformation is with fact. And unfortunately, there will be people that won't be persuaded by fact, but you have to fight bad ideas with correct ideas. And I think that this board misses that. And I would also say, I appreciate that you're like sympathetic to the stated uh, goals of the board. I think most people would be, we don't want foreign actors streaming information into our domestic sphere. But at the same time, I would say anybody who is in support of this board should consider what it would mean if their worst political adversary became president in 2024 and was in control of what is true and false. Yeah, but I do think that what you said at the end there is the key, in control of what is true or false. And I don't think this board has that power. Except it's so ill-defined on what its power is that I just think it's a Pandora's box sort of situation. Once you create this new, there's a government board that's going to talk about what is true and false. I just, I think that that could potentially be really dangerous. Yeah, I mean, not to insult these people, but it feels to me like a committee, which is usually where, you know, in Washington, you send people to waste a lot of time. And so to me, any re any of my reading you and you've done more research on this than me is that they don't really have a like defined powers and so i'm i'm a little bit i'm sensing a little bit of of exaggeration about this board's aims and i'm actually not like too upset about it because i think this is like a good debate like whenever the government tries to take on something like this i think it's really important for society to push back so like a little bit of exaggeration is fine with me but it, it feels to me like it's like the reaction is a little exaggerated. yeah i think the lack of defined power can be read as there is no power or there's a potential to usurp power that right. is unforeseen and i think that's exactly why like mayorkas went on cnn and said we did a really bad job informing people about our disinformation yeah, board of all things um but i so i i, I just would say if you wanted to land an idea like this, disinformation board's a terrible name idea. And also you should be very explicit from the outset on what you are and are not doing, which unfortunately they failed just to do. Just a clarification. I thought you liked the word disinformation, but you just don't like I, the name in this board. No, I don't. I mean, just because of all the political buzz surrounding it, I just feel like it's it has a censorious vibe about it, just the name of it, I think. I don't know. I mean, it could even be like the foreign actor propaganda board or something mm -hmm. like that. Like yeah. that would be a much less controversial situation, I think. Yeah. I agree with that. Well, let's move on. For the first time in six years, a sitting president went to the White House Correspondents' Dinner this weekend. Joe Biden got up there and read some jokes. He roasted himself. And the whole thing felt pretty normal. Comedian Trevor Noah from The Daily Show headlined the show. And all in all, seems like people like to set. Ravi, uh, I'm sure you remember a couple of these from your Obama days. Are you glad to see this event return? Well, it was a big moment for us Staten Islanders because our guy Pete Davidson uh, went <laughs> with uh, the first lady of pop culture, Kim Kardashian. And, you know, there's already been reporting that he's been taking her to restaurants in Staten Island over the over the past year. And so for us, that was like, to us, that 
I don't even know what I would compare it to for any comparable <laughs> place to us. That's like that's like seeing you know you know one of your own become president of the United States to us. It's like we couldn't be more proud. And I love just the fact that he wore sunglasses on the red carpet. And you know I think he's been handling this thing pretty well. You know a couple of weird text messages between him and Kanye aside. Like I think he's he's done well by the image of Staten Island, which was suffering before he came along. Interesting aside, um, <laughs> yeah, I would have liked to see Pete Davidson actually be the headliner. Now, that right. would have been pretty cool. But the headliner was, of course, Trevor Noah. Before we get into Trevor Noah's jokes, uh, Biden himself, he took a couple of shots of himself, but he also took a couple of shots at other people, shots being the operative word here. I just want to take a look at one of Biden's best jokes. We're here to show the country that we're getting through this pandemic. Plus, everyone had to prove they were fully vaccinated and boosted. So if you're at home watching this and you're wondering how to do that, just contact your favorite Fox News reporter. They're all here, vaccinated and boosted. All of them. <laughs> Ricky, how do you feel about that as somebody who knows the folks over at Fox? Um, that's not a surprise to me because there was the employer mandate in New York, so I don't really feel like that's news. That's a good point. They had no choice, Biden. I don't know if that landed very well. But didn't uh, just to, just to interject a second? Didn't Fox get ahead of that mandate and require vaccines before the mandate? I'm not sure. I think it might have been location by location, but don't quote me on that. Listeners can know. Google that. Yeah, we might need to Google. Can we get a fact check on that? No, never mind. I don't uh, think we had one. <laughs> I'm not at stating the post. a fact. It's just a question. I, I'm going to say I don't think we had one at the post before. The mandate which is the same building so i don't i don't think so um <laughs> trevor noah was of course we just said like three times was the headliner of this event he had some really good jokes i i compiled a little a short little snippet of his of his best jokes here and this is one that he said in regards to being a comedian in these times it's very hard to be a comedian it's very dangerous to be a comedian trevor noah outlines that here i've actually been a little bit worried about tonight i, I won't lie you know i was like what if i make like a really mean joke you know about like Kellyanne Conway, and then her husband rushes up on the stage and thanks me. <laughs> I, thought that, I thought that was a good joke. joke. That's a strong joke, right? Uh, and he used, to, of course, talking about George Conway. And didn't, didn't Breaking Points have something to say about George Conway in regards? But Breaking Points in general, I think they were like making fun of this whole event and saying that it was like, you know, egregious that the press was, you know, uh, cozying up with the White House like that. Well, yeah, I'm I mean, sympathetic to that. I yeah. mean, but were they? In, was it just because they weren't invited? Oh, I sh shout! I'll shout them out, and then one criticism of of our friends over there. I don't actually know them, but they, that I thought that they were right. To, I like anytime people criticize these kind of pomp and circumstance events where yeah. elites get in a room and you know scratch each other's backs or whatever. Um, so they had this high minded critique of the event, and then shortly thereafter, comment on how ugly George Conway looks and I'm like just stop at the first thing like yeah. you're, you're right like we don't need if this event is stupid then why talk about how fat George Conway is like you know like that's to me we have yeah. a rule here that's like don't comment on people's appearances and even then I was like I was about to say with Trevor Noah I was like he looks pretty good but like that that in itself would violate the rule even though it's very positive he's grown on he me. looks he, he, he does look good though he, he does and he's grown on me as a comedian I used to not be a huge Trevor Noah fan I get I was spoiled on Jon Stewart but I, I really like Trevor Noah now he's really grown on me and this event specifically made me like him even more and one thing that he did that I thought was really interesting was he had a critique of Ron DeSantis who did attend the event so it was bold for him to actually do this he did not attend right did not attend yeah I thought he did not no, attend. I, I think he, he was there yeah, yeah, no, was he, he not there yeah he said no, he I got in 
invited but did not attend yeah. oh wow it's yeah. funny because in trevor noah's joke he's constantly saying that he's there so trevor was lying to us oh really maybe like, he just someone maybe lying. he thought he was attending maybe he thought he was yeah, yeah maybe he yeah. thought he was attending ron maybe ron was there and then he said he wasn't there <laughs> because if it may have something to do with this particular joke uh this is the thing he did about ron DeSantis. what i like about ron DeSantis is like if trump was the original Terminator. DeSantis is like the T-1000. You know, you're smarter than him. You're slicker than him. You can walk down ramps. Yeah. <laughs> because you see, no, Trump said he won the election, but everyone was just able to look at the numbers and see that he was wrong. That's why Ron DeSantis is one step ahead. First, you ban the math textbooks. Then, nobody knows how to count the votes. Boom! My man! <laughs> I thought that was I thought it was an interesting critique because I was just thinking about this the other day like Trump's only real competition for a Republican nomination in 2024 if he decides to run would be DeSantis and I and that joke really made me think you know there's been a little bit of a riff between DeSantis and oh, Trump yeah. and I, I could see them I could see them going head to head I think Trump would ultimately come out the victor but that would be a very interesting case study for the Republican Party I mean this is the thing a lot of people on the left say is that like there's like a smarter more disciplined version of Trump I I'm holding out like my judgment on just I, I have strong opinions about DeSantis's policies and how he's carried himself, but like I think there's a lot to be said yet about how close he hews to to Trump's ideology yeah. and style in a presidential race because he would have to distinguish himself in that race. And so Absolutely. I think if he just mimics Trump's styles and policy, he's not gonna make it out of that race. Yeah, I don't really think that he's stylistically that similar to Trump. I think oh, no, he's far all. more calculated and and far more um buttoned up like a politician. Except when he freaks out on be. kids for, for, <laughs> for wearing masks. Wear masks. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we get the real Ron. We get the real Ron, aka Rick DeSantis around here. I get a smidge here. of petulance in him but nowhere near the virulence of a and and like by the way this that's not like in short supply in politics like he's not the only politician who's petulant but like i get a smidge of it from him whereas like it's potent with trump oh also, yeah so were they just like cutting to a guy that looked vaguely like him i know i, I feel like they were <laughs> i think they must have had a map like knowing a little bit about how some of these things work they must have had a map about where DeSantis sh should have been sitting and, and they, they didn't have to, like, good enough information seat. as to whether he was there or not yeah yeah I think like you said he was supposed to be there but he probably didn't attend because yeah, he was there Hollywood Washington I mean it would be a terrible look for him like the, you want to run against the elites you don't yeah, want to be of in the room with them which, yeah. is, which is interesting that so many Fox News people were there but again it is the White House correspondents and a lot of them are correspondents of the White House even if they're you know against the White House it's a hot ticket it is it is a hot ticket Um, I really thought all jokes aside Trevor Noah's ending his his ending monologue was very very powerful every single one of you whether you like it or not is a bastion of democracy and if you ever begin to doubt your responsibilities if you ever begin to doubt how meaningful it is look no further than what's happening in ukraine look at what's happening there journalists are risking and even losing their lives to show the world what's really happening you realize how amazing it is like in america you you have the right to seek the truth and speak the truth, even if it makes people in power uncomfortable, even if it makes your viewers or your readers uncomfortable. You understand how amazing that is? I stood here tonight and I made fun of the President of the United States, and I'm gonna be fine. I'm gonna be fine, right? Like do, you, like, do you really understand what a blessing it is? Maybe it's happened for so long that you, it might slip your mind. It's a blessing. In fact, here, ask yourself this question. Honestly, ask yourself this question. If, if Russian journalists who are losing their livelihoods, as you were talking about, Steve, and their freedom for daring to report on what their own government is doing, if they had the freedom to write 
any words, to show any stories, or to ask any questions, if they had basically what you have, would they be using it in the same way that you do? Ask yourself that question every day. It's a very interesting question. And I think we as journalists have to ask ourselves that all the time when we're doing this important work. Yeah, we do this morning meeting every day. And I think that's the question we try to ask, right? And it's you can, you can only aspire to hit that standard. But I think it's the right question. You know, this morning, for instance, when we got together, we said, look, like we have the privilege of be, get, trying to get to the bottom of this potential decision coming down from the Supreme Court. And all of our family members and friends are asking us about it. And they're probably at work right now Googling this and reading while we get paid to do this. And as long as we have this privilege, we just try to do the best we can with that. And I think in that way, is like that's why I love our audience. Like they're constantly holding us accountable, sending messages about suggestions. And, yep. you know, I think, you know, uplifting us and saying, look, keep going, keep trying to develop nuance, even if, you know, it's you can never be perfect there. But it, it the work is fun, but it's also a... And never, you know, a, a, a difficult and impossible task to get exactly where he's going, but it's worth trying, you know? Yeah, and I think his comments definitely underpin the importance of free speech and how that's created our society and our journalistic institutions that hold those in power to account. And, you know, making people uncomfortable is often part of that. And I think that that's really part of the beauty of our country and the fact that we're free to do that. So... Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you all for listening to the podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening, make sure to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. We will see you guys next time. 